The following message is made available for you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Mora, Minnesota. For more information, visit us online at www.emmanuelmora.com. So tomorrow marks one of the uh, most anticipated days in the calendar year for many of the kids uh, across the country. It's a day in which they get to dress up uh, in their uh, costumes and tour the neighborhood with the sole purpose of getting as much candy as possible. Yes, tomorrow is Halloween, and if the adults with kids were honest with me today, you like Halloween too, because it is the annual time in which we can teach our children an economics lesson and show them the candy tax, right? Because there's going to come a time when currently it's 35 cents to the dollar that Uncle Sam takes from us. So we might as well get them used to that idea by taxing the candy a little bit. So we're getting close to that and uh, just a day away for us. If you're an elementary school teacher or a paraprofessional, I know that you have a special relationship with, uh, with, with Halloween. Uh, because you are going to do your best tomorrow to get through the day while you look out over your classroom and you see where there used to be normal children and now you see monsters anywhere from, uh, you know, a, a dinosaur to Queen Elsa to, uh, to uh, 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 I don't know, Freddy Krueger or something. Not that Queen Elsa fits in with Freddy Krueger. It might, depending on what you think about Frozen. Uh, and if you get, a man if you manage to get through Halloween unscathed, you know what November 1st is like as a teacher. It is a day when you are struggling because the kids are either so tired that they're just having the sugar to get them through the day and they're not able to respond to you, or they are uh, on their sugar hangover and uh, just want to uh, uh, get through the day themselves. And though they might not be in costume anymore, they're a different kind of monster on that day. So pray for your teachers this week. Pray for the community uh, uh, in the next couple days because the struggle is indeed real. Uh, you know, one of the, on top of the motivation for acquiring massive amounts of, of candy uh, tomorrow night, one of the chief motivations for children uh, on Halloween is that uh, they get to um, get candy while pretending to be something that they're not. Uh, they get to put on a costume, uh, whether it be somebody or somebody else. For some, it might be a profession. For others, it might be uh, uh, a character from a movie or a show or a video game. And, and some people uh, will dress up like inanimate objects. You might see a hot dog walking around the community here in the next, uh, the next day. Whatever the case, tomorrow the streets are going to be flooded with uh, children who will be pretending to be something that they are not. But sadly, many Sundays, our churches are filled with people who are pretending to be something that they're not. They don't come dressed like doctors or donuts asking for candy, but they do come with a costume that looks like a Christian on the outside, but on the inside, they're anything but. And our passage today confronts us with something that we don't want to think about. Uh, 
and that is the propensity that we have to put on costume Christianity when we want to, when it benefits us or when we're around other people who claim that identity. But when it comes down to who we are in our heart, our identity as a Christian might be as, as, as cheap and as fickle as the costumes that children wear on Halloween. Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 14. 1 Samuel 14. Up to this point in our study, the people have rejected God uh, and his kingship over them and instead have demanded a king, a human king over them. And in their foolishness, God still granted them their, their request to have a human king over them. By all appearances, this man named Saul, who uh, was presented as the first king, he looked the part. He was young, he was tall, he was handsome, he was strong. Everything about him seemed uh, kingly. He thus far has been very successful as a military leader, and so people are rallying, uh, saying that this guy really is something. However, these qualities were nothing but a costume for his heart that rejected God in the same way that the people that he was over rejected God. And uh, as we work through the passage this morning, every one of us needs to look at whether or not we are like Saul, whether or not we are wearing a costume that, um, uh, that every one of us uh, uh, might be wearing a costume that looks nothing like what is actually going on on the inside with self-reliance, self-righteousness, superstition, jealousy, and so much more. So there are uh, two things that I want us to consider today. And the first is, is that we need to check our costume. Check your costume. You know, most costumes have uh, uh, three components to them. Some have more, some have less. But in general, uh, costumes will have the, uh, the, the clothing, They'll have, the, uh, they'll have the, the shoes, maybe, or maybe they will have uh, also the, the accessories, the swords or the weapons, whatever they are. Um, and as we work through this first point, we're going to find that there are three different components to a Christian costume as well. Uh, there are certainly more, but we don't want to go beyond what the text here says. Um, so the first one that we need to look at is that we need to take special note if we are ignoring wisdom and spiritualizing foolishness. Are we ignoring wisdom and spiritualizing foolishness? Last week, we, we worked through the first half of chapter 14. Uh, we found that those uh, 23 verses are all about contrast. There are contrasts between the radical and, and uh, risky faith of Jonathan and the superstitious or lazy faith of Saul. Jonathan acted in faith by seizing on opportunities to attack Israel's arch enemy, the Philistines. And Saul just simply sat around and waited for a sign to fall into his, uh, into his lap. Jonathan's attack was so successful that it created this panic within the Philistine camp and they ended up fighting each other. So even when Saul saw this crystal clear opportunity to go in and take out their enemies. He still wanted to distrust God and trust in his own understanding by using superstitious activities to build confidence in himself. He was spiritualizing his foolishness and ignoring the wisdom that comes from God. And as, uh, as he continues to do so, we march into 
verses 24 through 26. Notice what it says. It says, the men, the men of Israel were worn out that day, for Saul had placed the troops under an oath. The man who eats food before evening, even uh, before I have taken vengeance on my enemies, is cursed. So none of the troops tasted any food. Everyone went into the forest, and there was honey on the ground. When the troops entered the forest, they saw the flow of honey, but none of them ate any of it because they feared the oath. So it wasn't uncommon in, in uh, the ancient world for soldiers to abstain from certain things uh, while they were in pursuit of battle. We'll see that when, uh, when David uh, goes to battle um, as one of the generals of Israel. And it certainly wasn't uncommon for uh, army leaders to tell their uh, subordinates that they couldn't take of any of the spoils of war against the enemy because it would distract them and leave them open uh, to attack. But what the king is telling his troops here was beyond any kind of wisdom. The king is telling his, his people not to take in any calories whatsoever as they go in to fight. And if they did, it's punishable by death. Now imagine with me that it was uh, December of 1944 and uh, Dwight Eisenhower told his troops, hey, we're going to storm the beaches of Normandy, but guess what? You're not going to eat for a couple days before that. The end of World War II would have been very different than what it, uh, what it ended up being. And notice how ignoring wisdom and embracing foolishness is rooted in selfishness. Verse 24, Saul said, the man who eats food before evening, before I have taken vengeance on my enemies, is cursed. Whose enemies are they? They're not Saul's. These are God's enemies that we're talking about here. And now Saul has given himself over to foolishness, and he has put himself on the place of his heart that is reserved only for the Lord. So he's covering up his selfishness once again by superstitious means. That if they abstain from food intake, then God will bless them and give them victory. But God is not tempted. Anytime that you ignore the wisdom of God and you embrace or spiritualize foolishness, it will never be rooted in godliness or righteousness. It will always be rooted in selfishness. You might try to put a Christian spin on it, but it will inevitably have consequences in one way or another. And the consequences here are dire. Notice first that it affected his relationships. Uh, Saul had not considered that his army is uh, separated geographically, and there would indeed be people who would not hear this order that he would give. One of those people was his very own son, Jonathan, who has... Uh, quite frankly, been the sole reason why Saul has been so successful in all of his battles. Um, notice what uh, verse 27 says. However, Jonathan had not heard that his father made the troops swear the oath. He reached out with the end of the staff he was carrying and dipped it in the honeycomb. When he ate the honey, he had renewed energy. Why did he do this? Because unlike his father's, Jonathan actually had some common sense. He knows hand-to-hand -hand combat requires one to emit a significant amount of energy. 
And it's here that we get the first glimpse of a fractured relationship between Jonathan and his father, the king. Look at uh, verse 28. One of the troops said, Your father made the troops solemnly swear the man who eats food today is cursed, and the troops are exhausted. And Jonathan replied, My father has brought trouble to the land. Now that is a strong statement that he's using. Because uh, up to this point in Scripture, to use the term brought trouble on the land uh, is, uh, is describing some bad circumstances. If you remember uh, Achan, when he took some of the plunder from Jericho that was supposed to be destroyed, and uh, in, a, in a punishment, the Lord actually had the first Israelite casualties in the army come about. Joshua said, you have, uh, you have troubled the land. And if you recall, back in Judges 11, when Jephthah made a rash vow, and he had to end up sacrificing his own daughter, the text tells us that he had indeed brought trouble to the land. So Jonathan here was saying that his, his father's foolishness is on the same level as these things that happened in Israel's past. And he's right. Look at verse 29. Just look at how I have renewed my energy because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the troops had eaten freely today from the plunder they took from their enemies. Then the slaughter of the Philistines would have been much greater. So in Saul's foolishness, Understand that he lost the respect of his own son. So you can manipulate those who are around you for a time. But it's only a matter of time before they catch on. When you live for your own glory, it is only a matter of time before it severely damages relationships. And notice also how ignoring wisdom and spiritualizing folly affects the holiness of other people. Look in verse 31. The Israelites struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash all the way to Aijalon. Since the Israelites were completely exhausted, they rushed to the plunder, took sheep, goats, cattle, and calves, slaughtered them on the ground, and ate meat with the blood still in it. Now, admittedly, I have never hunted before. A little weird. It'd be fun to do someday, but I've just never done it. But I can, uh, one thing I do know about hunting is that when you go out hunting, you don't go and find your deer, uh, shoot it, run to it, uh, field dress it, and then just start chowing down on it. Because that would be rather crass, and it'd be weird, and it would be odd, and, and, and it probably wouldn't even taste very good. But... Here, that is essentially what is happening. This is barbarism. It would have been repulsive to a Hebrew. These men had been taught from before they could even walk that eating meat with blood in it was a sin against God. And to eat meat that still has, has in it would be disgusting to them. And, and, but because Saul had put Quite frankly, this stupid rule in place, these people go savage in sin. So whether or not you, you uh, want to believe it, when you stand on the pedestal of your own wisdom, 
you will only lead people into the pit of death with you. However, when you live in the wisdom of God, you have the chance of leading people into life. Well, notice secondly that a Christian costume also consists of pointing fingers. Consists of pointing fingers. Someone who is wearing a Christian costume will oftentimes overlook or ignore their own sin or shortcomings and failures and highlight those sins of others. Oftentimes it will come in the form of projection, which is a psychological term in which someone projects their own issue onto somebody else and makes them feel like that, uh, that, that is their problem. And notice how this shows up in Saul, verse 33. Some reported to Saul, Look, the troops are sinning against the Lord by eating meat with the blood still in it. And Saul said, presumably, presumably to his troops, You have been unfaithful. In saying that, he's not referring to their loyalty to him. But rather, he is referring to their sin against God. Now, to be fair, was what they did a sin? Yes, Absolutely it was. Leviticus 17, verses 13 through 14 says this. Any Israelite or alien residing among them who hunts down a wild animal or a bird uh, that may be eaten must drain its blood and cover it with dirt. Since the life of every creature is in its blood, I have told the Israelites, you are not to eat the blood of any creature because the life of every creature is in its blood. So whoever eats it must be cut off. So they are obviously guilty here. They knew what they were doing. But what Saul is not doing is looking at the circumstances that led them into their sin. In depriving them of nutrition, Saul is putting a stumbling block in front of them. And Jesus was very clear on this kind of thing in Matthew chapter eight, uh, 18, verse 6, when he said, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. So in this passage, is Jesus saying that these little ones sinned? Yes. But the one who orchestrated the circumstances has the greater culpability. And maybe this is your primary costume. Maybe you are guilty of minimizing the issues that you struggle with and magnifying the sin of others. Perhaps you have mastered the ability to, to mask your failures and the shortcomings that you have in order to make yourself look like the hero. It's really easy to cover up the truth when you make others look small and you make yourself look great. Which brings us to the third component of the Christian costume, which is fake righteousness. Excuse me a second. Fake righteousness. Not only does, does Saul ignore his sin, point the finger at uh, the other folks who uh, he thinks has the real problem, but notice he also props himself up as the sole savior. Verse 33. Saul said, you have been unfaithful. Roll a large stone over here at once. He then said, go among the troops and say to them, let each man bring his ox or his sheep. Do the slaughtering here and then you can eat. 
Don't sin against the Lord by eating meat with blood in it. So every one of the troops brought his ox that night and slaughtered it there. Then Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first time that he had built an altar to the Lord. So here we have a man that has shown himself time and time again to be one who disregards the word of God, who wants to go in his, his own direction and pretends that it's obedience. And here now when others slip up, notice what he does. He becomes the holy one. But he is not godly here. This is a charade. He is a charlatan. And yet it continues uh, throughout the passage. Look in verse uh, 36 when he feels the need to put on the facade of a warrior. Saul said, let's go down after the Philistines tonight and plunder them until the morning. Don't let even one remain. Do whatever you want. And the troops replied, where is the superstitious guy? that would not even dip his toe into the water unless he had some miraculous sign from heaven that he ought to do so. Well, if it, may, if it means looking good before other people and it gains his approval rating, then he is all in. But interestingly, uh, the priest pipes in here. And if you remember from last week, this is a priest who is an illegitimate priest. He comes from the line of Eli, the rejected family of priests uh, by God. And, and he steps in and says essentially to, uh, to Saul, um, you know, in verse 36, shouldn't we maybe, maybe consult God on this before you, you go out? And Saul's response is somewhat humorous to me. Uh, maybe you've experienced a dinner guest that's over at your house that's not accustomed to praying before meals. And the food gets all passed out. And uh, they start digging in. And as the hostess say, let's pray. And it's like the fork drops. They got food stuffed in their mouth. And it's like all of a sudden they become, hey, let's just go right into it. And Saul essentially does, uh, does that same thing here. When the priest says, you know, shouldn't we consult uh, uh, God here? And, and Saul then flips the religious switch and in verse 37, he says, oh yeah, I got to pray, I got to pray. Uh, Lord, should I go after the Philistines? Will you hand them over to me? Where's this guy been? And God's answer here provides the framework for the rest of the passage. Notice it says, but God did not answer him in that day. Why did God not answer him? Because of Saul's pride his foolishness, his self-reliance, and the list goes on and on. In, in, in Saul's narcissistic mind, the problem could not be with him. The mask of fake righteousness has actually blinded him to the truth. Someone's sin is responsible for the silence from God. And he says, even if it's my son Jonathan then he is ready to eliminate the threat to his prosperity. So he resorts back to his default, superstition. And now in verses 37 through 42, it's exactly what he does. It, it, it's really unclear what this uh, urim and thumim uh, is that he wants the priest to, uh, to use to figure out God's will, but we know that it's some sort of form of, uh, 
of casting lots or throwing dice out to find what God's will is. And in the Lord's providence, it ends up showing that Jonathan is discovered to be the culprit. Look in verse 43. Saul commanded him, Tell me what you did. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the end of my staff I was carrying. I'm ready to die. So foolish Saul here feels vindicated. While wise and righteous Jonathan is ready to give his life for the foolishness of his own father. But the message has already been sent to the people. They see the folly and the irrationality of Saul. And in verse 45, notice they won't stand for it. They, they pick up the torch here. But the people said to Saul, must Jonathan die? He accomplished such a great deliverance for Israel. No, as the Lord lives, not a hair of his head will fall to the ground, for he worked with God's help today. So the people redeemed Jonathan, and he did not die. Saul has lost all cred credibility with the people that he has charge over. Verse 46 tells, uh, tells us that he ended up just giving up this battle. This victory was sure. It was in the bag. And now because he has been dismissed by his troops, so Saul, just forget it. Let's just go home. Let's be done. It's a continual slide of degradation of Saul's kingship. This is the end result of fake righteousness. Eventually you will slip up. Eventually others will pick up on the fact that the emperor really has no clothes on. And so what are you and I left with other than the importance of self-introspection? You know the truth. Is the person that is sitting in your chair the same person that's at home? The same person that goes to work every day? The same person that is in the community? Is the person that we interact he with here, with all the fruits of the Spirit showing of the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, all those good things, the same Christ-driven person when you're alone by yourself. If I were to ask your spouse, or if I were to take a video of the last 72 hours of everything you had thought, said, and did, would that video match the appearance that you have come with today? Is it possible that you're confronted today, maybe for the first time, with the fact that maybe you are a costume Christian. Don't deny it. Don't justify it. Just admit it. And then, number two, very quickly, get rid of the costume and put on the Lord Jesus. Get rid of the costume. The chapter ends very oddly. Up to this point, we have seen nothing but the foolishness of Saul. But yet in verses 47 through 52, it summarizes Saul's kingship. And on the surface, it looks great. Look at verses 47 through 48. 
When Saul assumed the kingship over Israel, he fought against all of his enemies in every direction against Moab, Ammonites, Edom, the kings of Zobah, and the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he caused havoc. Uh, that's not referring to his own home. It's referring to his being a warrior. He fought bravely, defeated the Amalekites, and rescued Israel from those who plundered them. So what is the deal here? Is Saul a good king or is he not? Well, instead of answering that question, the author shows the dichotomy of what makes up a lot of our lives. On the surface, Saul was successful. He was a valiant warrior who rescued and delivered his people. And if it were left there, the history books would sing his praises. This is a king who led a very tiny country into being a powerhouse. But while his resume was impressive, his life was a mess. He was a failure of a father. He was, he was paranoid that anyone would potentially take over his throne. He left a trail, a trail of brokenness everywhere that he went. And this might sound familiar to some of us who are here today. Everything on the surface looks really good. But inside, you know that there's turmoil, there's not peace. And maybe your personal life may be in shambles due to, to, to your own sin or the sin of others that has affected you. We are a mess. But... Our Christian, our costume Christianity prevents us from having any real hope or resolve. Like Saul, you may be able to totally win or conquer your professional or your, per, or your, your public life, but the life of your heart has yet to be conquered. What you need and what I need is exactly what Saul needed here. He needed rescue. And the only way for hope of rescue that comes to people like Saul and like you and like me is if we admit that this is only a costume and we take it off and we throw it away. It's not enough just to fold it up and put it into a drawer because you know what? You can take it out once again and put it back on. But rather, you should take this off, throw it away, burn it if you have to. Get rid of it. Admit your mess and then put it on something different. Not a costume, but a completely different set of clothes. One that does not require you to pretend to be something that you're not, but actually provides full covering of your sin and real and lasting change. Friends, our text today calls us to take off that old and tired costume and put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, as truly God and truly man, was completely sinless in his life. Yet in his death on the cross, he took upon himself our sins, our hypocrisies, our costumes, our messes, 
God, Jesus, the God-man, took the Father's wrath on the cross and God's wrath was satisfied. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us this, that he, being God the Father, made him, made the one, Jesus, who did not know sin, to be sin for us, so that in him, Christ Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. It's not our righteousness. It's God's righteousness given to us. And by trusting in Christ, his righteousness is ours. You no longer have to live with the charade. Put on a face. We no longer have to feel like we look like we have it together because let's be honest, we don't. But Jesus does. And by trusting in him, we can live freely. In him, costume Christianity is dead when it encounters a resurrected Jesus. True Christianity blossoms when we can echo the words of the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 61, where he said, I rejoice greatly in the Lord. I exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation and wrapped me in a robe of righteousness. Friends, you don't have to live in a, spirit, in a perpetual spiritual Halloween. There is freedom to be who we were truly created to be in Christ Jesus and him alone. Trust in him. Let's pray.